You're Going to Die, the podcast is brought to you by YG2D, a 501c3 nonprofit bringing diverse communities creatively into the conversation of death and dying, inspiring life by unabashedly sourcing our shared mortality. To find out more, visit www.yg2d.com. I cannot encourage you enough to listen to this episode in its entirety. The journey Richie Reseda takes us on, connecting his personal journey to the truth of the prison system, don't miss a bit. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while or been involved in most anything that we're up to as a nonprofit, you probably have heard me talk about our prison program, Alive Inside. Oh, and hi, welcome to You're Going to Die, the podcast, your creatively conscious mortality podcast. My name is Ned. I am your host. So glad you're listening. So it feels important to give you a little snapshot of that prison program, at least to give you right now at the beginning of the episode, understanding for why it matters so much to have this episode's guest on the show. Every week I go inside San Quentin and facilitate a group called the Light Keepers with San Quentin Mental Health. This is a suicide prevention group, peer support, community supporting other community, training community to help others when they're having suicidal tendencies, dealing with crisis, trauma. It's an incredibly meaningful honor to be a part of that program. Also, every other month, we do an open mic in San Quentin. It's, it's called Alive Inside, and it's essentially the same thing as what started You're Going to Die in the first place. It is an open mic that makes room for community to talk about grief and loss, death and dying, to celebrate life mostly to be vulnerable in community together. And I would describe it personally as a place where you can go and name that thing like I did in the very beginning, using that space to name my mom, to talk about her life and death, to name that thing we carry in our heart that defines our lived experience more than most things, and we're not talking about it enough with others. Well, we offer an open mic like that in San Quentin every other month. Additionally, we've been out to Ohio a few times inside prisons in Ohio doing the same open mic and offering workshops as well for community to creatively engage with each other and write songs, write poetry, create music as a form of healing and connecting and a reminder that we're not alone. Catharsis, self-expression, all that, which is it just lands right in the heart of, of so much of what we do. But because of that connection to Ohio, we also started working with the exoneree community. Exonerees are community who are incarcerated, sometimes for decades, who should not have been. We've been to the Innocence Network two years in a row doing a restorative justice open mic, which is essentially the open mic I just described to you, but it's for exonerees, their friends, their family, the legal teams, the lawyers, the legal aides. It's, oh my gosh, there's nothing like it. I wish I could take all of you into all of these things so you could experience them firsthand. Needless to say, I can't even believe that I can list all that to you, that we are able to keep learning, and I mean to put it that way just like I felt with this episode's guest, to keep learning, to keep learning from this community. 
this community that is impacting the prison system. I got checked on that at the last Innocence Network conference. A gentleman was sharing at one of the sessions I attended, and he said, instead of talking about our community as community impacted by the prison system, let's talk about the community as community impacting the prison system. And I would say, in a nutshell, that's probably plenty of introduction for this episode's guest. Richie Reseda is a music, film, and content producer who was freed from prison in 2018. He co-created and co-hosts the Spotify original podcast, Abolition X. While in prison, he started Question Culture, the artist and worker-owned media collective that houses his projects, and co-founded Success Stories, the feminist program for incarcerated men chronicled in the CNN documentary, The Feminist, on Cell Block Y. It is my sincere pleasure to share with you this episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast with Richie Reseda. Being in prison makes you aware of your mortality immediately. Being in, being incarcerated makes you aware of your mortality immediately. Um, I think that's why even people who go to jail for like a day or something be mm-hmm. like, I've been to jail. Like I was there for a day. Yeah. Like it sounds people who have done years in prison laugh we laugh at that as, I mean, when people try to acquaint it to our experience or to even acquaint my experience to somebody like, um, you know, my Sally jazz who did 40 years, it's, mm-hmm. it's actually, they're not acquaintable. Like, uh, so there's laugh, there's laughability in there, but the reason why everybody responds like that is because it does make you're aware, like, Oh, I could die in here. Like in this moment, my life has went down in terms of how it is cared for or seen as worth tending to in society. Um, it is no longer. And that is a, that is an experience no one forgets. And being in prison is a series of having to experience that over and Mm -hmm. over. And Mm -hmm. there's something that there's something about a surrender that, um, I feel like our culture, our contemporary colonial culture does romanticize that, I think that I think is really damaging, which is like, they like to see people broken like that. Mm-hmm. Like they would see, you know, some of the, the people you're talking about in San Quentin, who I, I imagine, I know some of them. I know okay. a lot yeah, of people right. in San Quentin. Mm. Um, a lot of my, my family is there. And, um, I, I know that way of being that you're talking about. And it makes me sad to witness. Um, so people experience it as like, sagely or like so saintly or like, wow, like it's so humble because it is. And it was, it was achieved through like a breaking. Yeah. And there's, there is, I'll speak for myself, a spiritual gain that I learned about surrender that where I learned like the power in surrender and like what else it makes possible. Um, and, um, there's, yeah, there's something about that, that I feel like we romant. I feel like we romanticize the wrong stuff. We, mm-hmm. we romant culture tends to romanticize that kind of like sagely nature of it, but there's another side of it. It hurts my heart when I see that mm-hmm. because it's also connected to a continuous denial of the self. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, like any true thing, it's not really good or bad. It has things that we contemporarily can describe as one or the other to base based on where we place our needs and us being humans, you know? Um, but the, the, yeah, it, it is speaking to my own experience. I had gained a type of surrender that has been one of the key tools that I've used in life since 
in terms yeah. of my understanding of life and like how, and, and it has been deeply centering. And I really learned it in the recovery community within prison. I was going to say, um, yeah, you, know, you choosing to do work. First of all, like getting that moment with you just now is so important. It's, it makes total sense. And, and I just want to acknowledge my intuition about that, right? You tell someone talking about community inside saying they're great at letting go and pivoting, you know, they're super easy about letting go of control. There's no way you can separate that from what you just described. So, so glad to highlight that. And by the way, yeah, thank version you. of going in is like listening to you today just being so grateful for some of the things you want to talk about and letting you let it rip. So just know I'm going to be listening with, with rapt attention, probably muting myself sometimes because I don't want to exclaim amen and scream and make uh, guttural <laughs> noises the whole time. All of that is welcome. <laughs> okay. I guess that's what that we do. <laughs> you're right. You're right. But also, you know, my, the listeners maybe don't want to hear a, so much of that from me, but to acknowledge <laughs> guttural noises preferred. <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, I, 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 for a moment I appreciate like I already that. got just now. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. That. Thank you for that mm. invitation and for that listening and, and for making space for it. Um, and also something that I just want to say is that I'm so grateful that you were down to like move this time, like eight times. I don't know how many times we rescheduled, but <laughs> we I'm so grateful. Yeah. It was every, like the amount of presence that I have now is due to me being able to put it on a day where I can fully mm. be present. Thanks, and I've chosen. Yeah. So thank thank you. Thank you for your flexibility. And, and it feels relevant to me here because our whole relationship to time has been given to us by the executive producers of slavery. Mm-hmm. You're right. So, so our, we have the, 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 like any, any, any time we have the space mm. to just like be more cognizant and like use it the way we want it to serve us as opposed to an assumed oh, gosh. sooner is better. Yeah, right. It's like a gift because it would not have been better. This oh. now that I'm here, I'm like, wow, this degrees a this requires a lot of presence for me. I'm so happy to give it. And if it would have been any of those six other days, I, I would not have been. So thank yeah, you. I thank you so much. Thanks for knowing that. And and I gotta say, t- total transparency, really truly, as much as I'd be bummed, because I just would like no surprise, be worried. Will it happen? You know, oh, it got mm-hmm. rescheduled. Like, will we get to have this? Just eager to talk to mm-hmm. you. And really maybe even getting just some stuff you're putting words to now around, you know, there's no, there's nothing, it's nothing. It's like, okay, let's reschedule. And, and Mm -hmm. probably maybe only this time with, I think feeling the finality of finally getting to be with you, even before we find, we got into the zoom, I think there was a little bit of like, okay, maybe this time I might send an email that's like, okay, so my feelings are a little hurt. Are we for sure? Like, will this definitely <laughs> happen? Cause I don't know anymore, but all mm. along every time I sense that I sense how busy you are. I sense, to be honest, and you check me on this, Richie, I, I felt like, you know, you don't need some other white man throwing out even, even kindly into, into where you're at in the world, what you're doing. I truly, I sincerely mean this. I had this thought. No, and, and 100%. Again, I'm, I'm like, I don't need to be like, hey, you know, like, are we, <laughs> are we going to do this? We made a commitment. <laughs> I'm not no getting paid to be here. I'm here yeah, to, as exactly, a contri- exactly. like to exactly. try to contribute to the culture. <laughs> exactly. And it's like, yo, I can do that, but I really have to do it on my time. And you're, and you're right. I appreciate that. And it's not the symbolism of like you being white versus me not or whatever. It's the yeah. like truth of what that requires in my life when I'm, when I'm rescheduling, it is different yeah. than when some random white American person is rescheduling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, for sure. It's 
Thank you. You know, I truly get like five to 10 prison calls a day. I'm not exaggerating. Mm -hmm. It's this is my life. And I choose this life. It's not like, oh, I was just born. And like, I'm now at a level of privilege as at 31, where if I wanted to just leave the U.S., I probably could. I wouldn't Mm -hmm. feel integrated. I wouldn't. That's not how that wouldn't feel correct to me. But what I'm Mm -hmm. saying is I choose this life every day. I, I choose, I choose to continue to be connected to my people inside. I choose to like take mm-hmm. up responsibility to build my, my organizations in this way to, you know, so it's not, yeah. I, I also take responsibility for how busy I am. And yes, like mm-hmm. any white hosted podcast with probably a primarily white audience, they're going to get my time when I have it. <laughs> hell yeah. Love y'all. Thanks for listening. <laughs> yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> I feel you. And I'm, I'm with you. So thank you. Thank you. I, and, and I thank you for acknowledging the ease of this scheduling. I'm, it means a lot. I didn't need yeah, it. Yeah, thank you. I, I appreciate that, man. No, it's, okay. it's, to Gosh, me, it's important. It's the fully going. like taking this. These introductions are important because taking this amount of time to say the human shit on the air, I feel like is more important than talking about being more human on the air. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I appreciate it the yeah I, I appreciate that that care um and and to like be able to go back and forth and like also say like you know i need this or i need this and that's yeah. how we do it yeah hell yeah thank you um you can cuss on the show by the way if you like cussing cool um, i do just, just, <laughs> okay great it's um, a, for one of the first spells <laughs> i learned after no <laughs> perfect um all right so i i know you've I, I, I really, I don't love telling the, the origin story when I get on a show or when I get interviewed, unless it feels very natural, you know, it feels like mm-hmm. another way in, not like a, well, we better talk about this thing. Cause it's just a common question, but it does feel important <laughs> to me, maybe as a way to kind of get to what we started talking about the coming in, what happens when you start feeling the experience of a prison system, breaking you down, what it means to have to let go of control and maybe worthwhile for the listeners to hear as much of the story leading to that as you're willing to share. And I, I think maybe like more than mm-hmm. anything, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you just do things this way anyway. But what's present with you from that story that you want to name with me here, sort of as a, a, a way of talking about the origin, because it feels important. I'd love to talk about my relationship to death over the course of my life. Okay. And how it was influenced by being a criminalized person in Los Angeles County. Um, because I, I've, yeah, that's what I like to do. Um, do yeah. When I was a child, I didn't truly, truly, truly understand death. It seemed like kind of like a myth, but I knew it had to be true. You know, like most people, I feel like we all kind of start there. It's like the great mystery. How was I born? I'll die. You'll die. When will we die? Um, And I think there's also a relationship to, we're still learning our relationship to our power in that way. And I grew up in LA County during the zero tolerance. Um, For folks who don't know Los Angeles, not only does the Los Angeles city give half of its entire budget to the LAPD, but then we have the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department, um, which is also billions and billions of dollars. And then there's a Los Angeles school police department, which is the largest school police department in the country. And I think in the world, um, and the Los Angeles school de- police department is its own department of armed officers who 
their their police stations are, are on Los Angeles Unified Schools, and we're the second biggest biggest district in the country behind New York. Can we pit stop on this one real quick, Richie? Because I want to hear you talk a little more about that, which I think maybe some of the listeners, probably not a lot of them, can connect school context to. Uh, prison system context. My basic version of it, right, is Hmm. when I go into the yard at San Quentin and the alarm goes off and everybody's got to take a knee. And I tell my wife about that who works at a school here in San Francisco and my kids going to school here. No surprise, this is not the best way to articulate the connection, but it is a way to articulate it. That's the same thing that happens in the schoolyard. It's like, it's time to take a knee. And so I I wonder, you may have already- They have alarms in the schoolyard? Uh-huh, where like yeah. an alarm goes off and all yeah, the kids have to like get down. Not, exactly. Yeah. Put, yeah. Take a knee. What? And so what, for me, that really highlights is the connection, which I think you're explaining more profoundly, which is this connection to the prison industrial complex and how some of these realities kind of are already set up to connect. And, and especially yeah. maybe in a, in a place like the LA, you know, context. If you're like, that's good, I'm going to keep going with where I was going, but I also want to just stop there for a second and see if you want to add any more about that. I appreciate that. you saying that because I was talking to someone recently and told them that they had armed cops at our schools and they were like, what? And they were like my age. I don't, they were from somewhere in, in America that, mm-hmm. that wasn't a major city, mm-hmm. like a smaller town vibe. And they were like, there is there is cops at your school with guns? I was like, yeah, you didn't have cops at your school? They're like, no. Um <laughs> So, yeah, sometimes I talk really fast about things that are not that normal to people. And I appreciate that because that did affect the way that I thought about life and death mm-hmm. as a child. And the fact that they're doing and the the fact that they're doing alarms on schoolyards where all the kids have to go get down is some prison shit. That's wild. Mm-hmm. They didn't even yeah. do that when I went to school, which mm-hmm. I guess is a long time Me ago either. now. I, yeah. um, I dropped <laughs> yeah. out of school in like 2008. Mm-hmm. Um But the reason why they are so connected to me is because they're conditioning children to base their lives off of fear of violence rather than love and connection. Mm -hmm. They're teaching children that your safety has to be rooted in fear of violence and control rather than love and connection. Mm -hmm. And that is the idea upon which the prison system is connected. And that's why in the prison system, when there's an alarm, everybody gets down so that the cops can go easily uh, arrest, kidnap, further criminalize, further punish, further isolate whoever is doing whatever they are considering to be against their rules. Mm-hmm. And the reason why everybody gets down is because they are afraid of being further criminalized. When mm-hmm. you get written up, that adds to your sentence. If you're a mm-hmm. lifer, it could be a reason why you don't get let out at all, period, ever. Yeah. So the... It's like life and death is always on the line there. Mm-hmm. And the fact that these kids who are growing up in a reality that I didn't, we didn't grow up in, which is the the school shooter every fucking day reality, that is, you can teach people that therefore we need more violence in more places, guns in schools, prison alarms in schools, all the kids get down. They're getting down for the same reason we got down in prison. They don't want to get in trouble. Um, and they've been taught in some way that the people who are responding with more violence are doing it in our, in our best interests. Mm. Um, and in some ways that's kind of true. It's not an on or off. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a gradient. Um, 
however, anyway, there's, there's a lot of connections there. And what I'm seeing, the pattern is that there's a more violent response to a more violent reality and a more violent response mm-hmm. to a more violent reality. And that is a direction that, that is going in. That's what happened in my life. Long story boring. And that's what's happening to us on a macro level too. When I hear about what they're doing at your kid's school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I'm going to do my best cause I have 50 directions I want to go in and I'm, and I don't think you need my help, uh, staying and going a direction. So sorry to interject that it just felt really important to me because I heard you describe something that relates to something I don't have enough sense for, but have a little bit of understanding about. Um, and so I had to throw that in the mix there. I want to go back yeah. to the trajectory of the story. Yeah. You come, okay. Well, I can tell you now what it was like for folks to be able to envision. It looks like the first police contact I ever had, I was four years old. I was at a preschool. Um, mind you, uh, it was a private preschool in the like hood, low key hood adjacent. My mom worked there mm. and, uh, I went to this school and they brought in the cops, but I'm speaking more to the, the present nature of the cops and the culture of thinking that it's okay to have guns around children and under what guys, do we introduce children to guns and the idea of lethal force? And I was introduced to the idea of lethal force by this cop's gun at four years old, where of course, as soon as he steps on the scene, he's telling his little safety, don't talk to strangers, whatever. But me and all my four-year-old friends were like, what's up with the gun though? Like, do you shoot people with that? Have you Mm. ever killed somebody? Like, this is what, this is what's buzzing on the yard. Mm -hmm. It's not this, this fool's Trump change around. Don't talk to strangers. Our parents already told that, but Mm -hmm. you have a gun. That means you could kill us right now if you wanted to. And that, Mm -hmm. and what I'm learning is you could kill us right now if you wanted to, but we're all in agreement that you shouldn't. And we're learning under what that's like the line that we learn that Mm -hmm. there are people who deserve to die and people who don't, Yeah, who deserve to be killed and people who don't. We learn that the first time we see a cop with a gun. And then we get indoctrinated into who those people are and what you have to do to be on one side of that line or another. And that line was introduced to me at four years old. That cop left, came back with a tissue on his head, some little glasses, said, do you want some candy? I said, yeah. He took me for a ride in his little car, brought me back and then tried to embarrass me and said, look, Richard went off with a stranger. I was like, you're not a stranger. You're the cop from earlier. Yeah, I just but anyway, I'm, <laughs> right. Anyway, I'm, I'm getting distracted. Which you know. The, yeah, that's a real story. And my, my mom worked there. Made an example um, of you. Hmm. Yeah. So, and, and then, and that's, that's, a. Uh, my first ideas of life and mm-hmm. death. All of that mm-hmm. matters. That cop playing that weird game. He drove around. I was aware of his gun the whole time. I remember when I went in his car, looking in the back to see if there was more guns. Mm-hmm. And there was, they have mm-hmm. more guns, bigger yeah. guns. Yeah. And like, I'll, yeah, I, I learned then that some people deserve to die and the cops will play with you. Mm-hmm. Like the, the people who are deciding gets who, who gets to live and die, they'll play with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and the next time my, I was arrested or detained when I was 11 for uh, horse playing. And then when I was 13 for leaving school to get a haircut, um, I purposefully describe the exact actions rather than their like fancy crimp like titles. Yes. And <laughs> and they're, you know, this imagined mythology of crime and shit. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm just naming what I was actually doing. Yeah, right. <laughs> However, they categorized it to to justify yeah, kidnapping me, putting me in chains, um, mm-hmm. making me yeah, go to court, right. requiring money for my family, threatening my parents with incarceration. Whatever story they had to tell themselves to do that with a child who was going to get his hair cut or playing too rough or 
uh, scraping dirt off a desk with my key. Um, that's, you know, between them and, uh, their idea of God. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's really up to all of us because it's a normalized culture we've created. That's actually the thing that I want to say. That's right. Yeah. Our shared responsibility for this thing. Those of us that are privileged enough to like actually not deal with any of that. Cause I didn't growing up where I grew up, you know, in a mostly white town, Northern California. It still blows my mind when people say that to me. I have to remind myself that everybody's not walking around Mm -hmm. with this experience. Right. Okay. From there, um, I'd love to hear about kind of the trajectory from that part of your life into, into prison. And, and again, like I, I'm not, it's again, it's only important to me to talk about what matters for where you're at today and this conversation. Like, I don't need to have this thing shared in a way. Like, I don't mean to have this shared in a way of like highlighting that part is what's the important thing. But I also know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so much of how you're talking so much of, of the education you've sought for yourself, the work you do connects to this part of the story. And so it does mean a lot to me to get to hear it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I, I, I feel the relevance in it as well. And and I appreciate being able to share it in this context. Um, because I've, um, always thought about death and dying and like in relationship to like God and destiny. Mm -hmm. Um, I was raised by my, uh, very Christian father. Like we were going to church every week and then by my atheist Jewish grandmother, my mom's mom, Mm -hmm. um, they were like the most present and opposing spiritual forces in my life. So I got to see really early that adults don't even agree on everything. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and that there's multiple ways that this could be going down. And I remember Mm -hmm. when my uncle Norby died, I was 12. He was like my first, um, person to really like close person, close ish person to die in my life. He was my grandmother's brother. I did grow up knowing him. He was my uncle, like as a child, you know, and when he Mm -hmm. died, it was, there was an impact. Um, and, but he's on my Jewish side. He's my Jewish grandmother's, um, (laughs) um, brother, your mom, your mom's brother. Yeah. he He was my mom's uncle. Oh, I see. Yep. Yeah. He was my mom's uncle. My mom's mm-hmm. Jewish and my dad is black and Christian. Mm-hmm. And, um, my, so anyway, my dad's like driving me and my brothers to like this dinner where we're going to like celebrate uncle Norby's life. Mm-hmm. And I'm in the front seat. My little brothers are in the back. And my little brother says, dad, since uncle Norby died and he was Jewish, is he going to go to hell? Mm-hmm. And I looked at my dad at this point, I'm 12. I'm like kind of thinking uh-huh. for myself. I'm Christian though. I'm with him, but I'm like mm-hmm. thinking, you know, I'm question. I'm looking at things. I'm like thinking about it. And I look at him. I'm like, what is this fool about to say? And he said, well, son, yes. And I was like, Oh, <laughs> I, I looked at my brother's thing. Oh, looks just straight up. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I mean, were you at that point (laughs) enough to know, like, he probably would say that? Like, you knew that's his answer. By then, you know. I knew knew that was his true answer. The question was, are you about to tell? My brothers were 10 and 8. Yeah. Are you about to tell this 10-year-old and their 8-year-old that their uncle, who they have grown up loving and knowing, Mm, is burning an eternal hellfire? And my my dad, God bless him. He is with the ancestors today. Um, Mm. He... uh, 
he was very committed to his beliefs and he believed this is what I ultimately really want to talk about is like, we're all out here just trying to suit our needs Mm -hmm. um, for love, for safety, for uh, health. Um, And he, he had arranged his along, along the lines of traditional colonial Christianity Mm -hmm. um, as it's expressed itself kind of like, yeah, honestly, just like us Christianity. Um, And Cause I grew up, we were in, yeah, anyway, I, I don't got to go too deep down that, but just like, it was like related to a black tradition. That was like our original church. And then we moved churches to one of those like big churches where it's like those churches that just buy up a bunch of land and just like, yeah. it's just huge. It's this mm-hmm. huge church that has like four churches in the San Fernando Valley where we're from. And most, even, right. they, it's yeah. So it's like, so we started going to one of them type of churches. So anyway, um, well, Richie, were you like kind of floating though a little bit in the midst there, even in your relationship to death, because you have this influence of your grandma and that, that atheist Jewish influence. Yes. And then you got your yes. dad coming that way. Like, I know you're getting stressed in the midst, but also like what a freeing potential place to grow up in. So you weren't confined by two adult roles who both agree you're going to go to hell if you don't go this path. I mean, in a way it feels like that might've been a freeing time for you to kind of grow up in the midst. Uh, between those two perspectives. I think, I think um, looking back at it now as an adult, I can see it that way, but as being a child and trying to learn about the world in real time, it was, it was, it it did free me, but it didn't feel good in the moment. And that's okay. It's just so Um, confusing. You know, how confusing. It was just, Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, And, but I was seeking my own meaning and thinking about um, death and, um, I couldn't really rock with the idea that some people mm. like were just going to die because of their cultural upbringing mm. and like be in torturous forever. For, and some for, people will be in uh, perfect harmony forever because of their cultural upbringing mm-hmm. when all of their intentions were essentially the same. Mm-hmm. And that never sat well with me with that particular idea about death. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe that, but ho- however, that is the, the, the dominant culture. That's the culture that I grew up heavily influenced by. And I'm grateful for my grandmother, um, who, who just presented something so different. I remember asking her, what does she believe about death? Oh, yeah. And she being like, well, the Jews believe this. And she told uh, me like that. And I was like, okay, but what do you believe? And she was like, yeah. honestly, I was like, yeah. She was like, when you die, you die. Like it's a mm-hmm. wrap. And I was just like, that doesn't scare you. She was like, for what? It didn't bother me before I was born. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If I'm going back there, I wasn't complaining then as far right. as I know. And, that, and that's my Nana and, and God bless her. She's alive today. She's like 94 she? years old. And every oh time I call gosh, her, I'm like, Richie. Nana, how are you? She's like, I'm still here. <laughs> take up too much of your time in the midst of every friggin' episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast that you listen to. 
to talk about ways you can support what we're up to in the world. But I think it's fair, especially in ways that connects to this episode and all the things I've told you about our prison program, to highlight the fact that we are a 501c3 nonprofit and we do need your support. And I do not care how we get it. If you want to share this episode with people you know care about this kind of conversation, do that. If you want to rate and review this episode and the podcast in general, then go into your podcast app and do that. If you want to become one of our patrons on Patreon, then go do that. The link's in the show notes. If you want to contribute money to our 501c3 nonprofit, just go to our website, yg2d.com, find the donate link and do that. I will say you support us already by listening to this episode. You support the conversation we care about. So thank you for being here. Thank you for making time for this. And choose your own adventure on all the ways you can support You're Going to Die and what we're up to in the world. Thank you so much. about death is is guiding how we're acting from from the major decisions we're making not just like the the like the uh christian fascism stuff that's happening throughout the country but i mean like on a moment to moment basis the way that we're even making decisions is all connected to how we think about time and how we think about death and that those ideas were how did they get here how did we get here how did they get to this land they were brought here by people who were who were colonizing and enslaving, right? So those two things are together. And now on a daily basis, we can't even take feedback about ourselves because we've all kind of been indoctrinated with this idea, these ideas of right and wrong, and that we're all on our individual quest to be either good or bad. And at any given time, someone can knock you off your quest by saying, Hey, you hurt my feelings when you did this. And now Mm -hmm. you need to fight for your own self image that you're not a bad person because you're afraid of being an eternal hellfire with uncle Norby. And (laughs) You and and now we can't get anywhere. <laughs> and now every single fucking movement, mm. every single thing we're doing is mm. is riddled with a bunch of interpersonal harm that we mm. individualize. And the people who get hit the hardest by it are the ones who are most marginalized. And my community in particular, people who are literally put in prison and kidnapped and and have generations of their families like obliterated by this idea that we're all in our individual video games of being good and bad. Mm-hmm. Amen. <laughs> I, I want to say it on record. Oh my gosh. Uh, okay. So let's keep, let's keep going here. I want to first, I want to acknowledge you, Richie, for doing something so, uh, um, easily while talking to me, which is telling your story and having it very grounded in this like mortality, death, dying and, and and definitely to like how that fact of life influences 
the conversation we're in, like how we're in life. Yes. The, 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 yes. the living conversation. Um, Thank you for I the opportunity. Like I'm like, a Scorpio. Oh, oh no. Yeah, I, I think about I death all the time. I should have guessed that. Oh <laughs> man. Good. Perfect. Cause sometimes I'll have a guess where it's like, so let me just try to bring it back to the, and, and I don't, I don't feel the need here. It's like, all the things we're connecting on is is landing exactly how no, I exactly. Hoped, so appreciate I really that. wanted to be here. I love mm-hmm. this. I love this podcast is called You're Going to Die. <laughs> Recognizing absolute truths like that mm-hmm. and building mm-hmm. our lives around re- like truths that we can see is a deeply abolitionist and important practice that is anti everything that I'm describing right now. Mm-hmm. Because one of the reasons why people are hoarding resources is because they're afraid of being uncomfortable. They're afraid and they're afraid of dying. Mm-hmm. There are mm-hmm. people literally Elon Musk said, we have to go to the Mars or we won't live. Mm-hmm. Well, interesting. Is the yeah. goal to live or is the goal to be a part of this living planet? Mm-hmm. Because those are, that's going to, that's going to, we're going to move differently every single day from the moment you turn this podcast off to whatever you're going to do after this is being governed by, by the, I believe by the way we think about death and dying. Okay. And I had to become okay with death and dying to be able to be okay with, um, uh, being in a, to be, uh, uh, Hmm. What am I trying to say? I had to become more okay with death and dying to be a more connected community member. Hmm. Oh my gosh. Uh, okay. So then, th- then this is perfect. Cause one of your notes you want to talk about, I feel like we should just do this now because we already kind of are. And, and it leads to then it parallels, right? Cause it, it parallels into your, you know, the, the next stage of your story. Um, mm-hmm. the years to come after uncle Norby dies, right? Uh, mm-hmm. your, your note in, in the Google form I sent you was, we have a culture. What's that? I just said, shout out to uncle Norby. His his spirit is with us in this episode. I appreciate him. Yeah. Go ahead. And sorry. And what's your, no, that's okay. We're going to do this to each other the whole way. What's your dad's name? My dad's name is Chris. Mm -hmm. Okay. My dad's name is Chris. I'll definitely be talking about him more if we get to, because my dad actually reached, my dad died uh, three years ago. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In 2020. And I want, I want to make room for that for sure. Yeah. I appreciate that. You said we have a culture built around grief, loss, death, dying, and mortality that serves capitalism. And so I, mm-hmm. I, I, I want to talk about that because another one of your notes, and these are like the two things you're like, for sure, we're going to talk about this is, um, abolition, abolition's connection to grief and dying. I know we can't do all, maybe all that together, but I feel like I want to name we're those things. I want to make sure. Okay. I know exactly. Okay, great. So we've been doing that I, since I'm we thinking, got on. <laughs> exactly. Right. So, uh, but here's a chance to highlight, uh, that, that piece and, and maybe like hone in on that, especially right now. Cause I feel like you, you are talking about it and I want to make sure the listeners get, uh, I think especially maybe to something I'm wanting to hear you speak to, which is how cultures 
the culture built around grief, loss, death, and dying and mortality. It's a culture that's built on that stuff in unhealthy ways. Like you just described. Yes. And I'm wondering, and this might be a leap and, and I might be asking too much in this moment, but it is the, well, can we, can we connect then the prison industrial complex? And then also the ways it connects to your story. Like, can all these three threads be kind of tied together here right now in a little knot just to kind of make that connection, like hyper, hyper, uh, uh, clear. Hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I'll say this. When I was four, I learned about that line of whose life, you know, that there's a line of people who deserve to die and people who don't or pe- um, people whose lives are important, people who's not. And over the course of being uh, criminalized, I learned that I'm in the I'm a, I was on the category of people who's not. And that really influenced the way that I showed up. Um, when I started gangbanging, I didn't actually want to harm other black and brown people in my community. I was, I, that was not my intention. That was not what I, I didn't, I hated that part about it. I was angry at every, I was angry at society. I wanted to get fuck everybody tatted. I wanted to get terrorists tatted. Like I, I was, I, I, it was clear to me that I was not um, that I was on the list. I, I could die. That was not important to this society, the way that it was arranged. How, how, um, really, how really at four, you feel like that was becoming clear? No, no, no. I'm sorry. Four was when I first saw that there was a line by the time right. I was 16. Yeah. Then it was, um, yeah, it was, clear. it was a dub. And that's when mm-hmm. I, I literally had, uh, my principal told me to drop out of school. Um, cause I wanted to graduate with the 12th graders and I already had all my credits and, and a 3.4. Um, not that those numbers mean anything in real life, but to him, they should have meant, let this kid graduate. Don't, don't tell mm-hmm. him to drop out. Mm-hmm. Um, anywho, um, and you did, so I was, I, I was pushed out of school. Him? Yeah. 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 I mean, and it's like the I, principal's telling you that it's not like, this is an idea. It's like, he's making you pretty much. Yeah. He said, if you don't want to go to school, just don't show up for six months and then you'll, you'll be considered a legal dropout and you can take your GED. That's exactly what I did. I took Mm -hmm. my GED the day after I was considered a legal dropout. I was not trying Mm -hmm. to play with my life. I understood the importance of a high school diploma. My dad would, I I was really raised. I'm grateful to say like, um, my dad was, was, you know, uh, very committed, um, to me, like doing well in school, my mom too, but my dad really grew up like a student, 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 head ass person. Um, and interesting that anyway. Um, Mm -hmm. so I dropped out and, um, I had seven job interviews. They didn't, they didn't hire me. Um, and my dad kicked me out for dropping out and, um, I started selling drugs and, I had sold drugs before when I was, when I was younger, but that's when I really, I started selling drugs and Mm -hmm. I got when I was 16 and then I got robbed when I was 17 at gunpoint. Um, and that's when I started carrying guns with me all the time after that. Um, and when you have a gun, you're very aware when you've been robbed and you have guns pointed at you. I started getting shot at when I was like, I think the first time I got shot at, I was at least at earliest 16 at very latest 17. Mm-hmm. And I remember at first I didn't even run. Um, it's like, it took my brain a minute to realize what was happening. And then I kind mm-hmm. of like jogged off. Um, praise God, I didn't get killed, but I, mm-hmm. I, it was like, I, anyway, I, um, but I never expected to, to make it to 18. I overdosed when I was 17. Um, 
I was in the streets for real. So then when I uh, turned 18, I remember I was surprised. I had a call with my mentor, Vitaly. Um, and I was just sitting on the phone talking to them and they had asked me like how I felt. And I told them I, I never expected to make it this far. I never envisioned myself being like over the course of time, I slowly just started to not really ever see myself being like a legal adult, like to make it to 18. By that point I had had homies who were 18 who were killed. Um, so yeah, then I turned 18. I was like, Oh, I'm gonna be out here. And it really changed my mind about how I started acting. I was like, Oh, I'm going to be alive. Mm. And I stopped doing ecstasy. I didn't, I still was like on, I mean, I was depressed. Stopping doing ecstasy made me depressed. I was doing it every day for a while. And then yeah. I was depressed, but then eventually, I, but I like, I got a like job. I went to college. I started a clothing line. I started a record label. I was like getting it back together. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I turned 19. I was like, Oh, like I'm going to live. Um, and then I went to prison. Then I, and then, uh, I lost my job. I got my first apartment. I basically made it from like unhoused. The first big thing I had to do is pay off my tickets. Then I got a car. Then I got an apartment. Um, and my dad actually let me come back and stay in the house for six months right before I got my, the six months before I got my apartment. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I remember feeling like I was going to live and it changed my everyday actions. I even had a, Mm -hmm. a conversation with my homie, um, Cause I was like, I was trying to get back up from the street shit and the, yeah. the gun shit. You're like living up till then, like all those decisions, you're carrying death with you. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like both also, by the way, now that you're carrying guns, it's the cop, you know, where you first got introduced to the gun, walking in, carrying death like that. And then you're shifted into to that reality yourself by needing to protect yourself on the streets. But also you're just assuming you're going to die. Like you consciously thinking during that time up until you were 18 that you're going to die kind of any moment. It's not so much. I consciously thought it as much as I just never thought past being 18. Yeah. Yeah. I just couldn't, it just Mm -hmm. didn't Mm -hmm. like, it's not even something that really entered my world of thought at that Mm -hmm. time. I just never thought that that could possibly be. You're seeing like Um, friends die at 18 around you and just seeing that as an, the end. Right. And, and, and the fact that I just, I, I also overdosed when I was 17. So it's Mm -hmm. like, I already had been dead for 60 seconds and like had a whole conversation with like Mm -hmm. the light, which was like in the voice of my mom. Whoa, whoa. Okay. Can we, (laughs) Oh yeah. See, let's stop there. (laughs) Stop. Let's do that one. So you are on ecstasy. I had overdosed on Molly. Yeah. On, um, on new year's. Uh, mm-hmm. and, um, I was out and luckily my friend was, uh, like CPR certified and mm. she, um, two of oh them were, gosh. um, and they like brought me back, but it took about 60 seconds. And during that time, all I remember is like, I did shrooms the day before, went to sleep, woke up at like 5 PM, didn't eat anything, took 200 milligrams of Molly for the first time I'd ever done it and like drank something and like walk down the street and I was already starting to like hallucinate before I got to their house. Cause I lived on a block where it was like a bunch of us lived on one corner of the block and a bunch of us lived on the other corner of the block, all mm-hmm. children. Um, mm-hmm. and, yeah. um, the, anyway, 
I um by the time I got to the to the to my homegirl's house at the other side of the block and sat down, my reality just like a tear went through the middle of my reality as I could see it, and it just opened up, and I was in space, and I was just like floating towards like the sun. And I remember I saw this documentary at that time. I couldn't remember if I had ever existed or if I was just an idea. And it was like such a bodily experience as I was floating towards this light. And it started talking to me in the voice of my mom. And I remember asking it questions like, are colors real? Are drugs real? Are guns mm-hmm. real? Mm-hmm. Those were the three Most questions. questions. It was like I, oh my those God. were the three questions. Are colors real? Are, and I remember seeing colors and being like, like orienting to reality. Colors. Okay, that was the thing. Drugs. Oh, you can jump in and out of reality with these like, and different realities with these different chemicals that give you different access to your brain that is Mm. that real that's how Mm. i got here and then wait Mm -hmm. there's also guns which can take you out of the reality altogether is that Mm -hmm. those are things that we just pedal around and then i saw like all the guns in my life that i was just aware Mm. of their whereabouts like i just saw them like and like anyway i started kind of like they started like bringing me out of it i was like kind of like it, it went red And then I was like, kind of like on Mars kind of. And then eventually it was like, I was in the bathtub in my drawers and they had brought me back. And, um, um, some of my friends stopped talking to me. They asked me if I was going to keep doing ecstasy. I said, yeah, some people stopped talking to me. There was like early forms of like Mm. accountability. Um, Mm -hmm. and and, um, was your mom uh, alive during that time, Richie? We haven't talked. Yeah, My mom is still alive. Yeah. She, but she was, my mom is still living. That voice was coming in. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, but that I saw this documentary when I was a kid of all these people who had had near death experiences and they all said that they, um, saw the like God of their understanding when they went on the other, whatever they expected to see, that's Mm -hmm. what they saw. Like, Mm -hmm. like, and that made sense to me. I remember as a kid thinking that and being like, Oh, then I remember Mm -hmm. learning that like DMT is what your brain releases when you're dying. And I was like, Oh, like (laughs) there's something happening here where like Mm. spirit and chemical reality are actually connected. They're not two Mm -hmm. separate things. They're not in battle with each other. Like our culture always wants to either, or they always want to put two things in battle. Like they're, they're the same. They're the same. Actually the real, what makes the real magic comes from the shit that is real. Like it's real life. Um, mm-hmm. capitalism c- disconnects us from real life and tells anybody you can wipe away a land and tell it a new story there for, forget how these trees live thousands of years, forget who protected mm-hmm. this land, forget who made this work, forget the animals, forget everything. Now it's yours. And it teaches us mm-hmm. all to think like that. Like we're all in our own little personal movie. We're all the main character. And that's why we think we can discover music or we can, um, I don't know, just center ourselves as the main character in ways where much bigger stories have been happening that are, that are bigger yeah. th- to understand than, than, under- than could be understood through any one character. Mm-hmm. Um, and so anywho, now I got lost. I got, I started thinking no, about I'm with you. I got you. <laughs> uh, we're, we're, <laughs> we're in this together. All this matters. Um, so grateful for all of it. Okay. Uh, I I had I gave us the pit stop of your near death experience, which I'm so glad oh, we, yeah. we made a moment for that. And but you're you were on the trajectory of okay, you're going into you're 18 years old, you're getting into your own place. You jumped ahead to like going into prison, but first you said you got your own apartment, you got a car, yeah. you're alive, you're wanting to be alive, and then what? And um, I was working. I got a job working at the preschools. Um, and it was, 
Yeah, it was wild. I was a preschool oh. teacher's assistant. Oh I hung out with kids gosh, all day. Ridley. I helped them. Like I taught them uh, math, four-year-olds, three-year-olds, four-year-olds, <laughs> and five-year-olds. Their parents loved me. Sometimes That's I would incredible. have to go work in enemy oh. hoods. <laughs> yeah. And I would literally bring a knife with mm. me, put mm. it in my sock until I got close enough to the school. And then I would like, you know, there's like a school zone or whatever. And mm-hmm. I would like, I would, I would have to go hella early and like bury it in people's yards yeah, and shit. Do all, yeah, right. Yeah. And it's like that. So it was a very oh wild God. life and death. Like I am helping children. I'm so aware of those four-year-olds. When I went to prison, they, they, they sent me letters and drawings because <laughs> my ex was still working there. So we were still connected. And those kids are, um, oh. anyway, so I was very, no, hold, on, I was, hold I, on, hold on. I'm sorry. And tell me to stop holding on if you need me to, but I, I want no, okay. to, okay, cool. I want to interject uh, an idea here that I think a lot about and, um, you know, being a white male and living in San Francisco, by the way, like mostly white, this Ooh. question. Yeah. I hate San Francisco. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Go ahead. <laughs> I got an event that says you're going to die. And mostly populated over these years by white folks. Mm-hmm. And I understand that that may be inclination, obviously geographically, demographically, but being led by a white man, you know, the inclination for that. And it's changed a lot in the last few years, I would say, um, partly because we're able to go online and we've made more of a commitment to trying to connect to diverse communities and whatever. But what I want to ask is sometimes, and I've heard, you know, my BIPOC friends speak to this, to live an existence, like the version of an existence you're describing growing up BIPOC in this country, to have an event called You're Going to Die, maybe even if the population mainly in San Francisco was BIPOC, like let's say it's 90%, to have an event called You're Going to Die maybe wouldn't be the place BIPOC community would want to show up at. And so I'm kind of highlighting that because I wonder what exactly, I wonder what you could say about that. And, but then I'm really felt moved when you're talking about the abolition connection between saying shit straight, like what it means to you to say yes to a podcast that says you're going to die something about your life and having lived through all this has you in a way open to the yes of that. And then also the understandable reality that most BIPOC community maybe would say hell no to that. I've done that already. I've lost everybody already. They've all, you know, the amount of people that got killed, the amount of the lot, the amount of loss, the amount of like It's a different fighting. Yeah. It's a different fighting for your life every day. Mm -hmm. So like when you're saying you're going to die, it's like, who is saying that to who? That's right. Cause we're, we're told that. You know, that's what I was told on that officer came up in the preschool. That's what I was told. Like we, we're very aware. We are very aware we're going to die. We're very aware that like we can be killed. And and like, so when you say you're going to die, it almost sounds like a threat. Yeah. Like, um, but I knew the context in which it was, and and, and I like researched y'all and I, um, but the, uh, yeah, I can see why people show up, but it also depends on who's saying it too. And like, Mm -hmm. who's saying it to who, Mm -hmm. um, and like, what does that mean? Because ultimately what I was saying about the abolition thing is like the whole, every time we talk about abolishing prisons, abolishing punishment, um, folks say, what about rapists and murderers? And honestly, what they're saying is I want to live in a world where doing those things is not an option. And unfortunately that's not true. Yeah. 
That world doesn't exist. People can make those choices. People do make those choices. All the time. And the idea is that people, if they're afraid of death, if they're afraid of losing life, either in installment plan, incarceration, or altogether um, of being killed, then that will stop them from those things that I'm afraid of, or even anything we want to stop them from doing actually. And so the entire idea of law and order is balanced on this idea that we're all afraid of death in the same way. We're all afraid of losing life in the same way. And yeah. yeah, And that that is stronger than love Mm -hmm. and that that is stronger than love and that that, and that that fear of death is stronger than love. But, it, but the, the, also what is recognizably true is that it is not. <laughs> yeah, right. It is not. It's not it one, not. first and foremost. And two, because we have based a society where we say fear of death is stronger than love. We, we, we like to paint God as love on the wall, but we actually in practice fear of death is our God and it shows. And that is why we invest in prisons. That is why a lot of my friends have life sentences. It's not because they're, they're dangerous right now or that they ever had to be put in a position where they would make decisions that could be dangerous to others. It's that it's based on that. It's all based on that idea. Mm -hmm. So we, it's like, it requires us to to relate to death differently. I think abolition does Mm -hmm. because we have to give up the right to kill somebody if they harm us and, and to, and to say, um, I nor, nor anybody acting on my behalf is not going to do no violence. I I can find a way to, to base our, uh, to base how I move in the world and care. Cause we do it. We do it in our families. That's why when there's somebody, when I was in court, after I had just robbed three stores and I was fighting 150 years to life, my, when my mom Jesus and dad Christ. came to court, when my family, when my, my chosen family came to court, it's not like they were there in the name of me robbing the stores. They were, it's not like they were there to say that robbing the stores was a good decision right? or fuck the people who, who were harmed by my actions. They're, they were there to say, we love this person. This person can and has, and will make different decisions. Hmm. We, we see this person enough to want to help them back to themselves because we've been in spaces with this person where they're not putting a gun in somebody's face, asking for money. And we could base our society and our choices in that. But it's scary when, when it, what people, it's scary because we believe that the fear of death shit is stronger. Um, but it's not though. That's not what's stopping you from fear of death is not what's stopping you from killing your own family when you go home every night. Fear of death is not what makes you work your ass off for your kids. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's destroying us because it, 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 it compiles. That's why we have school shootings. The culture is going to continue to get more violent because we respond to violence with violence and then to that violence with more violence. They told they they were violent to me first. I was just a kid. They told me, you don't belong here, blah, 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 whatever. Criminalized me everywhere I was going. I was in trouble getting arrested. So then I responded to them with violence. Oh, I'm a fucking gang member. Okay, cool. I'll show you a fucking gang member. And I went and became a fucking gang member. And I looked up to gang members because they took agency over the way they've been cast away. Mm -hmm. So I responded and then they responded with violence. Okay, well, I'm gonna lock you up. Uh Right. And I could, and most people then continue to respond with violence. They continue to then. Right. 
Right. Right. Mm-hmm. That shit is going to keep getting worse. It's going to keep being more war, more blah, 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 more blah, blah, blah. We're, we're not building any of the skills necessary to go in the other direction, the love skills, the peacemaking skills. But we do have them. We use them with our families. We use them with ourselves. We use them. All, they're, they're our human capability. Like yeah. <laughs> we didn't make yeah, it 200,000 years without them. Yeah, I say like, especially loving that's highlighted and how your family showed up for you. I love that. I love that. Right. Snapshot of they came there because they know all the parts of you or like those parts of you that the court system, the prison system doesn't even care about. Doesn't even care about the possibility that you have that option or have it or maybe we'll take that option, you know, moving forward. And yet we've given them all our power. Doesn't make money (laughs) on on that possibility. Actually, they don't make money. It doesn't make money on love. Right. The more we the more we rely on each other, the less we need them. Mm-hmm. That's okay, why I when wanna, I reached I, out yep. to my victims and, and apologized, I got a letter back from the DA of LA saying, if you ever reach out to them again, I'm going to file a new case. Mm. Holy shit. Yeah. Like, you know, that's, that's, it thrives off of that. It thrives off of disconnection because then mm-hmm. capitalism be- gets to become the middleman. Mm-hmm. They get to make money off of the work, whatever needs to be done, but they're making it worse if the goal is to heal relationships, build strong communities. Like we're doing everything the opposite of that. Okay. This is so important for me to hear. And, 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 and so I'm feeling so much gratitude for, <laughs> I just want to stop and say, just name that. Um, and I don't, I don't, I don't know that. I think what I want to hear then is in prison. I feel like that must've been where some of this education started to come to you. Is that true? Do you feel like start of your learning uh, of what you're yeah. able to articulate now? Be, can we, can we kind of go to that? Yeah. Cause, Cause I'm imagining you in prison, making music, creating, yep. connecting. And I'm wondering like what led what gave you that opportunity to choose that in there? If it wasn't, you know, I know it's you, you had an agency to do that. I feel your heart. I know what I, I can feel. Yeah, what but it's way beyond knew. me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it's, do you want to talk about it's me? That sure. Yeah. But it's like, like you were saying, it's, it's what communities and who we enable each other to be, what we make space for. Mm-hmm. You like, choose it had, there. You choose that pathway. You described it already. And I, I, these guys talk about it all the time, you know, and in, in yeah, Quentin, you choose you know, it and then like, people water mm-hmm. it. But if you mm-hmm. choose it by yourself, like it's, that's, it's, that's, I was able to choose it because I had people who are watering it. Yeah. Right. I wasn't like alone. I, I had a I whole like community, like on, put that way. you know, yeah. on the outside who I was able to water those parts of me. And then, and built a community on the inside where I was able to do that as well. Cause at first I didn't know mm. that I could do that. Um, so when you talk about, I love that. I love the wording of that, like get it getting watered. Do you, do you, you, you kind of made it seem like there that you still had the community outside family and friends loving on you as much as they could, you mm-hmm. know, with the limitations of the system. But also mm-hmm. I have to assume too, that you started building community. You met someone I'm thinking like, who is, who's that first person that you met in there that was like, this is the way don't go, don't go that direction. Like come this way, but also it feels important to acknowledge the love you felt from your family showing up for you at that hearing held you going in. 
Like you were getting watered in that way. And you, you were making that choice of, of choosing love as you were going into prison. Does that fair? Cause I'm thinking of some of these guys we talk about out at, out at San Quentin, they share stories of coming in and not choosing that and not having the support. And some, yeah, you know, not- some of these guys, of course, in the context of the programs I'm out there, like, of course, they have this version of the story that at some point there was someone in there that said, is this what you're going to keep doing? You know, like you want to keep doing drugs, you want to keep drinking, you want to gamble, you know, you want to get deep in debt, you want to stay in the gang, or do you want to go this way? And and when are you going to make that choice? Because I'm over here. Yeah, I mean, def- I definitely had multiple moments of people calling me and calling me forward. Um, mm-hmm. I think what I'm speaking to is the moments of people watering who I was. Cause mm-hmm. that's, I think yeah. a lot of people, even, even basing it in the idea of like all the times where I was called, like when people are like, you still want a gangbang? Like that, like those are important moments. I'm grateful. Um, I, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I still, I, I, I I'm still, what I'm also the... saying is like, we were not born broken. <laughs> yeah. There is no brokenness. Um, and when we don't live our life on a, uh, playing a moral video game, then we get to see like from jump, if you had listened to eight year old Richie, he was saying he wanted to make art. Yeah. Right. But y'all insisted on all these, 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 these gender roles. Y'all insisted on these ideas mm-hmm. of black male masculinity. Y'all insisted on, um, making the schools hyper-violent y'all insisted on these ideas of trouble and suspension and police and blah, 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 and all this shit. And now every, at every turn you're telling him who not to be rather mm-hmm. than when he said he didn't, I never came out and was like, you know what I really want to do? I want to rob stores and gangbang. No, <laughs> I wanted to make beats and clothes like always. Yeah, and had, and I- had there been space to do that in LAUSD, yeah. More space to do that in the context of my home, more the more space are built around that, there never would have been a drug right. problem or a gang problem with little 12-year-old Richie, 16-year-old Richie. Mm-hmm. And that is the same for that. That's the message that I, I, I be trying to give people when they're talking about like, oh, like, can you just talk to this kid and like tell them like how it's going to be for real because you've been to prison and you got out. And it's like, I'll no, I'm going to talk to you and say, stop telling them who not to be and listen to them about who they want to be and make space for it. the easiest ways to connect up to all the things Richie Reseda are up to are go to any platform that has the handle at Richie Reseda. You can connect to Richie in all those ways and all those things on all those things with that handle. And also just go to the website questionculture.com. Of course, I'll put all these links in the show notes and a special shout out to Richie's dear friend, 
His new single, JJ88's new single, Atlantic, is streaming everywhere. So I'll try to give you some links to connect to that, too. Um, supporting Richie, supporting community, uh, connected to the prison reality. This is a friend of his that he was making music with on the inside. And so now that um, they're out and Richie's able to support them getting their music in the world, so happy to share links to get you to that here. But especially check out questionculture.com and Abolition X, the podcast, and Richie Reseda at all the platforms. Nick Jaina, how the heck are you? I've been listening to Abolition X since uh, Richie came on this podcast. I I didn't know about him until you gave me the interview with him and I've been deep diving into his podcast. He's amazing. I, I so blown away by him. Can you tell me what in editing the interview? Cause I know sometimes, um, you're especially struck by the conversation and maybe in particular, there's ways to highlight exactly why. And so I'm wondering for this, this episode, what really struck you? His, um, Constant framing of every question and everything through, and I know that he, he's mentioned in other places, like Bell Hooks is a big teacher of his, and she talks about the imperialist, uh, white supremacist, capitalist patriarchy of, of being the framework that you need to view everything that goes on to understand it. And he is just so grounded in every response coming to touch on those factors, you know, particularly like capitalist patriarchy. Um and the way that he is just like so grounded in that and and it's so helpful to view things through that otherwise you try to interpret the world a lot of times and you just feel like you're going insane because you're like why are people acting like this or why does this seem so messed up or crooked or something and then to just hear it framed so solidly just is makes me feel sane you know Um, yeah and he just speaks so clearly on that, on those subjects. And it's just so, so refreshing to hear. Is there a episode of Abolition X that you could kind of offer as an access point? I know you probably have, haven't listened to all of them, but what's that been like for you? There, there's one I was just interested uh, listening to uh, on the entertainment industry and the ways that all of these issues intersect with that, uh, particularly with copaganda, you know, the, the way that TV and film has just promoted it was really interesting since the, you know, Keystone Cops era, like silent film era, Buster Keaton, cops were bun- bumbling fools and they were kind of like, you know, just seen as kind of bullies or just like things you didn't want around. And there was a concerted effort to make uh, the cops look like heroes mm, and like protectors yeah. and shows like cops, but also like a million dramas, you know, that are about and comedies that are about the police force, like you know, showing them, just humanizing them, you know, and how well that has worked to just like create this image of what their role is and, and how natural it is to have cops in society, you know, versus yeah. the, the way that he frames everything of like, when the cops are in a situation, like everything changes because they can take you away from your family. They can lock you up. They can kill you. You know, like that's yeah. just a fundamentally changes everything about their interaction. And so, um, they were talking about that in relation to the entertainment industry and just like, you know, people working on projects and whether they work on a project like that or, or how they like 
work within a system that is still interested, even though it's presented as being liberal, you know, um, Hollywood still promoting these very conservative viewpoints of society. The, the, there's so much of that. And, and, and also into the legal system too. I've seen a lot of, uh, documentary content about, the slew of shows we have that highlights not just the cops, but the judicious, you know, judicial system in very dramatic, powerful, effective ways. Um, but the one I love, the one I love that you sent me, you sent me a snapshot of, of one of the episodes. I think the one you're describing now, but Paw Patrol was the, the highlighted episode in the survey they sent out about that episode, which is both just hilarious because it's a cartoon about dog cops, but also, to the point that you're highlighting for us in that episode, it's that early that this is get this image is getting yeah. fed, you know? Yeah. And just think of like who they choose to make into Lego figures, you know, there will be a cop. Um, there won't be like a, I don't know, <laughs> independent <laughs> musician. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, Nick, God, can please someone listening. Can you just connect to like Warner brothers cartoons and start a kid series about Nick Jana, a small independent musician and writer series. <laughs> but I hear my eight-year-old stepson talk about like cops and robbers, like they're just right. these roles that you jump into. And it's just like, okay, I'm, I'm buying the striped black and white shirt. I'm going to be a robber, you know, because <laughs> mm. I'm bad and I'm the cop. I'm noble. So I'm putting on the uniform when it's just absolutely not that way. And it's like, has to be reinforced through that propaganda to, to seem real to people because it so goes against what human society is like, you know, mm-hmm. but people don't, yeah. I, as Richie says, and several times, I, I didn't want to grow up to be a robber. You know, I don't want to grow up to do that. I wanted to make beats. I wanted to, you know, make clothing and do art. Yeah. Yeah. It's said. like make music. You funneled into these opportunities, mm. limited opportunities, you know? So I, I've just been loving it. It's been very activating to listen to. I love that. I love when that happens. I love getting texts from you after I finish an interview when it means a lot to you. Certainly a good measurement, I think, for us doing something that matters when we both feel a lot about it. Because it certainly meant a lot to to be in a conversation with him in the way that's very humbling and that I need to take the position of learning constantly, especially especially with other community, BIPOC community, community like that's not like white male considering what you also said earlier, the reality we live in, this system I'm privileged enough to gain from and what it does actually in contrast to other communities um, that are not white male uh, matters so much. Uh, it meant a lot that Richie would be down to have that kind of conversation. And like, I don't know how much you kept in around the moment where he acknowledged it took a while to, yeah, to get our I kept it all in there. Good, no, I good, love that. Great. I was just going to bring uh, that up. Yeah, I left that all in there because that's, yeah, it's not just like, oh, I'm talking to diverse people and it's all better and we're just happier for it. It's like, there's friction around it. And he's like, essentially, to par- paraphrase, it's like, you weren't my first priority, you know? <laughs> like, it's more important to me to take these calls from prison and like work mm-hmm. on my shit. And sometimes I'm not in the mood for it. So I'm, yeah, I'm going to cancel on you. Mm-hmm. And, and I... I thought that was just such a well-communicated on both sides, you included well-communicated conversation around that. Cause like, I I'm sure you could, a person could easily just be like, Oh, this guy isn't serious. He's jerking me around. Or you could think other things, you know, but like that, that's so real. Like I, mm-hmm. I really appreciated that conversation. Yeah. Thanks. I'm glad you kept it in there. 
Uh, I don't want to put you too much on the spot because I have, but I appreciate You want me to everything. play a song because yeah, I'm sitting out of here? Yeah, my live. He's out of Something about the insidious nature of Paw Patrol uh, on the keys and go. Um, no, I thanks for all this. I, I did want to ask you one more thing. I want to use this as a chance to acknowledge Richie that he kept doing something for us and for me that matters so much, which is he kept grounding though all of this meaningfully in the mortality and death and dying uh, mm -hmm. context and and especially personally, which which you know maybe in retrospect now I think it's not that much of a leap, but he I didn't have to keep bringing it back to that. And so like I want these conversations to mean a lot and trying to stay in the wheelhouse of our organization, he helped that so much with with our talk. And mm -hmm. I, but I'm wondering for you, as you kind of start exploring more of the abolition X and that podcast and in and, and your relationship to how this conversation mattered a lot to you, I'm wondering, like so much of what we just talked about for, you know, the last eight minutes or so, how do you ground it in this just to end the mortality, death and dying conversation? And maybe it doesn't need to be done more you know, than he already did for us. But I'm wondering if you can add something around grief or death and dying that kind of connects for you. Um, You're asking if we should change the name of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, or just <laughs> totally depart. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, we've touched on this uh, different times, like the way that uh, this organization, which you started like 13 years or so ago, right, was initially like thought of as like spurring people to live in the moment, you know, spurring people to realize their mortality and, and still is obviously, but mm -hmm. certain people, it's a, it's a different, has a different context to it. You know, it's just like, yeah, we, yeah, I know <laughs> it's yeah. very clear to me. And it's very clear to me that like a lot of society wants me dead, you know, and mm -hmm. maybe is saying almost those exact words to me, um, by an authority figure who can't, who has a gun, who can kill me, you know, um, that's, that's really interesting. And I, I was kidding. I, I don't think we should change the name or the organization or the podcast or anything, but oh, God, thank God. I, I appreciate, he seemed to say like he showed up for this interview because right. in part of the name, because of that opening, you know, so he received it with the, the honesty that it was, but like, mm -hmm. it's, you know, this more, way more than I do. It's constantly fascinating the way that just the name <laughs> of this <laughs> organization yeah. and podcast leading the way yeah, to make some people be like, you know, no. like Audie DeFranco right. is just like, oh, yes, I want that. I want to mm -hmm. talk to that guy, you know? Mm -hmm. And I'm sure other people that maybe you don't even ever hear from that are just like, what the fuck? That, yeah. that can't be good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, no, so. yeah, you're right. And, and I appreciate all that. Uh, the thing we've talked about before on the show and that I've said for years is that that first invitation is a big deal because it really like lets people decide, am I going to go to that open mic and be in that kind of space? Cause it, it's, it's asking you that, that kind of truth and it offer, and it, and it's confronting enough that people who aren't ready can say that's too much and, and, and resist it angrily or for good reason or whatever. Um, the last thing I'll say in a way that, I've been thinking about an answer to my question I just posed to you is how much I believe like the best version of it talking with Richie. And again, I don't know if you kept this in there, but when we talked about the name, you're going to die mm -hmm. and how over the years, the open mic understandably, partly due to the fact that we're in a primarily white city, a show 
hosted by an organization yep. led by a white male would mainly have white audience, you know, members and white followers. And, you know, my wish for an expansion and diversity, our commitment to that and, and, and also to really get a chance to ask Richie a question that I've thought a lot about and talked with other community about, which is like, what does it mean to have a name of an event this? And when we've thought about having other events and, and opened up our organization to create access points in more diverse ways to connect to other community, the idea to change the name has happened and it has happened, you know, mm-hmm. um, where we've created things that just drop, you're going to die because the BIPOC community who are involved in these, uh, organizing these events would state, and I'm paraphrasing like the relationship that Richie highlights for us here, which is that naming something, a threat like that coming from a mostly white led organization, you know, it, it, it needed renaming. Mm-hmm. And my belief here especially emphasized now by what Richie said in response to me bringing this up is that this is true of death, I think. And, and, and that death is a a great revealer. It's a revealer of truth. And so what mattered so much for me to answer this question in conversation with Richie is that our being meeting together in that context is what let us have all this like vulnerability and rawness and honesty in ways that aren't just like the opening to be real, but also the ways that connect and are sort of highlighted and emphasized by this fact that we share, but how we could relate to death itself, me in a more privileged way than Richie who grew up in a relationship to death that was bound to the political system, to the the cops, to the prison system. Oh, I just, but, and so accepting like, wow, that's a thing that happens when we name something, you're going to die for the BIPOC community who receives it. And there's a truth there that needs to be acknowledged. And, and Richie gave us a chance to like air that a little bit. I'm just feeling, feeling that yeah. today. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's funny how last week we were talking about changing our names, our last names when we both got married <laughs> right, right, right. And, and we're both men who took our wives' names when we got mm-hmm. married. And how I asked you if you had gotten married a decade later, when you were more of a public figure with this organization, could, would you, could you still have changed your name and have it even stick, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's ultimately the question that comes up for me is like, can you go so far <laughs> with, with a name and change it and have it actually remain a viable business? Mm-hmm. You know, like, it, like, it, like there's just those realities too. Yeah. Um, that, um, but I, I think what you're saying is like, it, it, it stings a little, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's off-putting, it hurts, but like that, creates this rare opportunity in a lot of cases, you know, and probably, you know, I do a similar thing with my tea services. It's not that, not the name is threatening, but the name is like mysterious and confusing and people are scared because it's so intimate and close and they think they're going to have to, uh, volunteers, you know, (laughs) participate. Um, and it kind of like, curates who comes and I, and then the people who come are yeah. really like, I know when they walk in that door, they're down for whatever, you know? That's right. And I think maybe you have that with the interviews in this podcast. Like I think somebody so. logging into this, you know, zoom session is like, I'm, I'm, I don't know what this is going to be, but I'm open for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Thanks, Nick. And Richie sure showed up that way. So yep. grateful. Thank you, Richie. Thanks to all you listeners. Thank you, Nick, so much for your work on this episode. So appreciate these chances. Hope it's worth the audience's while to listen to us get a check-in like this, but it sure, sure helps me process and make important connections and keep kind of learning the thing we're doing here. So thank you, Nick. But thank you all so much for listening. Uh, so glad we're in your ear. Until next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.